I'm Jen, and you're listening to Nick Nat Goes to the Movies, the one-stop shop podcast for all things movies, TV, and pop culture. Turns out he's a major cinephile. They don't watch enough movies! It's a very simple formula! And here we go. Welcome, welcome, loyal listener. I'm Nick, and this is Nick Nat Goes to the Movies, available pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts, but you already know that you're listening right now. Last week, we had a phenomenal guest talking a darker occult show. It was kind of the, the subject fair. And this week, we're going back to the, I guess, founding pillars of this show with some more slasher goodness. As a still fairly recent fan of the genre and an overall horror person, I'm still playing catch-up on some of the classics of the genre. Maybe three years max have I been watching things outside of The Walking Dead and Scream. Like I said, this podcast has kind of evolved into not a Blastoise (laughs) Pokemon, but instead a scary media podcast. Well, that and superhero things when I have the time. Like I said, last week, I only recently discovered that Carrie and Prom Night were two separate franchises. I sort of presumed Prom Night had Carrie and the ill-fated prom in question. Little did I know, four years after Carrie hit theaters... That magical place of media entertainment that I miss every day. A different prom theme slasher came out and about to play. I knew it was my duty to you loyal listeners and to myself to watch these. Now there are a ton of these sequels, reboots, the works. So my goal was to watch the first and the latest remake to get a scope. I don't think either is known for having amazing sequels. Not unlike some of those direct-to-VHS Disney sequels of old. So I am limiting this episode to those four movies. Together we can answer the question, which franchise is better overall, and how I would rank these four as individual films. So grab your corsage, figure out how to tie a bow tie, no clip-ons here, pour out some punch, spiking it is optional, and let's take a spooky trip back in time to the prom, baby. The first of these movies, I figured I'd start with the one I liked the first watch through the best, and it came out first. That is Carrie. Coming out in 1976, the only streaming platform to view this on is Stars, so I did have to rent it on Amazon Prime. The default for me when I can't find the prepaid versions of things. This is one of those movies that feels old. Not always a bad thing, but sometimes there are limitations, especially in horror that are just a bit noticeable. Not just in special effects, mind you, but also in the how acting was back then for this genre. You can see this in the early Friday the 13th movies as well. In short, we meet Carrie, a shy girl who's been sheltered from a large part of the world in part to her overprotective mom. And because of this and bullying, things don't go so well for her high school time. Look, spoilers be damned here. Most people know the explosive end before we already begin. I like to view this as the movie that shows the issues with bullying, much like the way that Freaks and Geeks did so long ago. It shows how much of a nightmare school can be. But more importantly, it shows just how over-sheltering someone from the world can lead to absolutely dreadful culture shock. More likely than not, no one can live safe away from the world forever, and this movie obviously sensationalized, shows just a taste of that. Also fun enough, 
somehow every time we see a hint at the powers Carrie displays, we hear the psycho sound effect from the 60s flick. If you've seen Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood, the hope was to have Jason take on either Carrie or someone like her. The movie battles were and still are all the rage with the new Godzilla vs. King Kong coming out soon to one of those HBO Max watch-at-home movies, and of course a few superhero fight movies coming out from both DC and Marvel not too long ago. Sadly, we got Freddy vs. Jason instead, because rights, and you all know how I feel about that piece of rubbish. This movie, I feel like, is a story of someone who the world has forgotten about, and man does the high school suck. Thankfully, she has one teacher looking out for her, and sometimes that's all it takes. And it's nice to see a gym teacher shown in a positive light. Pretty much everything makes the gym class and teacher the worst parts of your standard coming-of-age high school movie, TV show, what have you. I will say, those moments when she's in control of her psychic powers, I'm all about it. It's easy to root for Carrie. Some kid makes fun of her on a bike, she eats that kid off his bike. Justly deserved. Probably one of the weirder parts of this movie, the part that no matter what feels the worst and most out-of-date, has to be the over-religious, pushy zealot, which is Carrie's mom. This mom has to push Carrie to the brink to get to the climax. I get it. But I just don't seem to think this character would exist in cinema today or even back then. Not like this, at least. Which is why I was ecstatic to see and really curious what the 2013 remake would do with this character if she was as is in this. The portrayal would would feel laughably strange and not believable in the slightest. I mean, we are talking about a girl with psychic powers, so believability be damned, I suppose. This is not so much a take on religion. It's more so a stance on hiding things from those who are under your care for so long that it becomes a clear issue to, like, living in the real world. Actually, to a much lesser degree, the new Superman and Lois CW show kind of plays with this idea of how long before they tell their kids that their dad is Superman and they might have powers and... Unfortunately, it gets revealed not because the parents told them, but based on an accident. So pretty much the bullies at school suck, right? But if nothing else, the character you have to be the maddest at here has to be the mom. Speaking of the mom, it's impossible to root for anyone who locks kids in broom closets. That's just the facts. And this is for sure the case in Carrie still. Not sure how people view Harry Potter, thinking specifically the movie here, not the book, but the late Richard Griffiths as Vernon Dursley, makes the strongest case as someone you at least enjoy on the screen. I don't know if anyone's rooting for him, but I think partly this is because Harry thankfully gets saved and put into this magical world where he makes some friends and there's teachers, and he doesn't have the eventual blow-up that Carrie does. Vernon does not take over the franchise as the main, you know, new character. This is not Randall Park as Jimmy Woo taking over the MCU overall. The MC Wu is alive on here, this podcast, as well, and not just TikTok. But in short, Carrie's mom is literally the worst and the absolute villain of the movie. Look at how many parallels here, speaking of Harry Potter, exist between Carrie and the big ol' HP. Both of our protagonists are 16. They both display strange in comparison to everyday life magic powers and have had outbursts in the past. We know it's because Vernon tells him when you're at the reptile exhibit, like, no funny business, right? He knows that there's been things in the past. 
not on, you know, these aren't emotional outbursts per se, but they're both power outbursts, right? They live in overbearing households. Harry with his secondary family relations, which I think helps his case a little bit as he can romanticize his parents' memory, where Carrie's home jailer and villain is her birth mom who she's known no one else, so it has to be there. That's her support system is what it is and there's no other option. And neither has a friend in the world. Harry has none until Hagrid comes and saves him, and I guess he had a fun talk with the chatty snake prior, but let's not count that. Carrie has one gym teacher that helps her a bit, but she has so much pain throughout. This one teacher can only do so much to carry that load of the emotional burden. But in another world, a parallel universe, or since there are all the rage now, a multiverse, Harry Potter could easily have turned out like Carrie Potter, killing a bunch of muggles, most likely this family too. He could have become the next great and terrible, great and terrible dark wizard of that world. So back to Carrie itself, because we took a little bit of a magical tangent there. I will say, re-watching this movie, because I saw it twice before recording this episode, the poetry scene is the one scene where everyone can see Tommy, who's supposed to be the good guy, as a little bit of a jerk. But that could be chalked up to just mob mentality of Carrie's a weird girl, let's just pile on because that's what everyone else does. But I remember thinking about the poem scene. This English or language and literature, as I used to call it back in the day, And I love that class growing up. Heck, I would have been a writer if TV and media had not called out to me from the wind. But he makes fun of Carrie for calling the poem beautiful. It may not be an amazing poem, but if the shy girl talked in my class, if I was teacher Nick, Mr. McGann, and said it was beautiful when asking for criticism, maybe like let her say why and give her a chance to speak and not make fun of her. What a dick, am I right? I do like the quick thinking of changing your... You suck to aw shucks. People don't use golly gee and aw shucks enough these days. There's something sensational about Miss Collins going to town and all these bully girls after making gym class pretty much boot camp hell. I love the pseudo revenge scene. They're doing a crazy amount of working out. Recent workout Nick here onto week two of doing workout six days a week. No big deal. Might be down to try this hardcore workout. But watching her threaten to ruin their prom dates, like a knife in the gut for these jerks. I actually forgot that Sue, one of the girls who did torment Carrie in the beginning, actually is shown having remorse for her transgressions kind of throughout. Now, she never, like, actively apologizes to Carrie or tries to befriend her, which would have been a huge step to avoiding or helping mitigate all of this. Carrie is too smart for their ish, though. She knows what's going down. And even though it's not inherently, she's aware that, you know, what eventually does become the setup. If only they had, like, gone as groups. This is more of a recent trend for how prom going works that I guess didn't really exist in the 70s and such. I did do some some research and asking around. So I did some polling of some prom goers in the 70s and such and 80s in that time. And turns out group prom going, very recent of a thing. People weren't going stag or as the group of friends back in the day. There is a line here where you say... You can't go to the prom solo. I mean, says who? That one teacher, I guess. But, you know, seems like a crazy rule to me. Seems a little ostracizing if you catch my drift. So there's some more Friday the 13th Part 7 comparisons here. But they make Chris here to be the secondary villain. Clearly the worst at school. And in that movie, which is pretty much Carrie as a slasher film, 
Melissa is the rich girl's vindictive, shallow bully that fills this role super well. One of these may be slightly more nuanced, but the result is for sure the same. Also, the most exciting part, a super young John Travolta is here. He doesn't do a ton and is the atypical high school idiot. But this was what started him off on his amazing career through Grease, Saturday Night Fever, Pulp Fiction, and beyond. Just seeing him here, it is out of sight. But like I said before, huge missed opportunity with having a prom music movie, and he isn't doing the twist, jumping off cars, or even snap walking. For shame. Especially when Heatwave is playing, and you know he wants to just bust a move ASAP. Also, speaking of John Travolta, the car, I guess we'll call it blowjob scene, where Chris is talking the whole time and drops an I hate Carrie Washington midway through. First, she's talking a ton somehow through this, and what a bombshell to drop in that, we'll say, intimate moment. This might be the most unrealistic part of the movie, I think. There are some really touching scenes in this movie to shift gears. Most involve Carrie and Miss Collins, and the times she tries to help her out, build up her self-confidence, and the way this movie uses its music. Sometimes the orchestral soundtrack by Pino Danaggio really does hit you with the emotions, and this pep talk is so good and should be listened to on a loop. Some of it is just confidence and self-love. Damn being seen by a 1976 movie. This gym teacher tells her all the good she sees in Carrie, and it does not come off as facetious. So good, so good. You kind of watch this as a train wreck and a failure to communicate. If there was some way for Sue, Tommy, and Miss Collins to get on the same page and get Carrie reintegrated into the prom and the social group. It was a fun rewatch knowing that Tommy and Sue weren't all bad and grew to be better people throughout the movie, no matter how short it was for one of those two people. Doesn't really matter for their fates, but it's nice to see the growth. They really go out of their way to make you dislike Travolta, even though clearly Chris is pulling his strings and the apex mean girl predator. But no matter what, he is the pig killer who got the blood that was used to remind Carrie of this terrible moment and humiliate her. Also, ever since this popped in my head, comparing her mom to the mom in Waterboy, who says, everything is the devil, can't unsee it. Kathy Bates, who has been amazing in AHS, and I can't wait for more soon, is such a parody of Carrie's mom. Like, school is the devil, you know? And, like, I, I, that was an awful impersonation, but, you know, I did what I can. But I did have to go back and watch that scene and the whole, alligators are ornery because of their medulla oblongata line. So good. Cl- vintage, classic Adam Sandler was peak Adam Sandler. Also, One moment that I have to mention as an out-of-left-field moment before the prom happens, there is this scene of everyone getting ready for the big day, and somehow, for a brief second, there's like a fast-forward dialogue moment for three seconds. Older movies use this a lot, some action movies, some older, you know, the Disney Channel movies. Either way, Stupid, bad, strong dislike, hard pass, it feels like an accident because it's so short and it's never used again, but I know it wasn't an accident. And with the audio sped up, so you hear the sped up words, like gross, just terrible. Also, right before the prom when Carrie like takes control of her power and life a bit, restraining her controlling mom so she can 
go live her life and go to the prom. It's so good. And her mom using the phrase dirty pillows once again feels like something from Waterboy. But here it's dead serious. Once again, her mom sucks. But dirty pillows is such a, a 70s, 80s dialogue word you would never hear again as a phrase. There really are some nice moments from the prom scene. And even then, Carrie has trouble receiving these compliments. Like, damn, stop being too real and relatable, Carrie. Gosh. But I love the music and things. There is a point where you could probably stop the movie where it all seems nice and a happy ending. She's a prom queen living her best life. She'll grow into a more complete woman after this lovely culture shock in a good way. That's a nice fish out of water story. Damn, I wish the cute parts could last forever. If you know anything about this movie, you know what happens next. Thankfully, Sue and Tommy are actually trying to make things better and give Carrie a good night and never had a hand in the bad parts. Even going as far as Sue trying to stop things and Tommy being the first accidental casualty of the night, even being as pissed as anyone after the sick prank happens before being bucketed to death, then the real ish goes down. Carrie, while seeing in her mind that everyone's laughing at her, even though this isn't reality, she has finally had enough and has such low self-esteem that her psychic powers are unleashed and everyone is toast. Even the few help her. And somehow, Sue lives through this, but it's nice to see how happy her and Tommy are before everyone dies. And this is a movie where pretty much everyone dies, including her one super nice teacher. It makes you question Ring for Carrie a bit here, but I'm team Carrie all the way. Yeah, it ain't her fault. I know the book is different, but when Chris and Billy go after her, she defends herself against them. And even when her mom goes after her, she still defends herself. And all the psychic energy just comes out and she kills both her mom and herself fallen victim to this wild power while the town hates carrie for it sue sadly knows the truth and is haunted by these events and thus the post-credit scare scene became a trope of the genre very similar to the first friday the 13th dead jason coming out of the water boat scare i actually really like this movie and the important story and message it puts out in the world bullying sucks good self-esteem is important but not easy and please don't raise your children in a way to close them off from the world. So on to the 2013 reboot of Carrie. Yes, I am skipping the 2002 one because I don't really feel like renting another one. You know what is for free? The 2013 one. Sundance TV has an app that I have on Roku. Currently it has the Ghostbusters 1 and 2, the Naked Gun movies with Leslie Nielsen, who we'll talk about later in this episode, and somehow this movie. Roku has the Sundance TV, not now, the TV one. And bada bing, bada boom. How did I find this pleasant surprise out? Well, you know I have been rating and just recently starting to write reviews for things I've watched on Letterboxd. Well, through them, there's another site you can go to called Real Good. You sign up, it's free. You can tell them all the networks and streaming services you have, you look up your movie or show, and they can tell you if it exists on one of your platforms for free, and if not, where you can rent it. Like, this is a game changer, and apparently the app can work with your Roku as long as they're on the same Wi-Fi, so you can use your phone to find thing you want to watch, and then it can jump there. I haven't tried this yet, but sounds like a fun ad and a fun time. I promise, this isn't officially a ad for real good, but I was blown away by this this discovery 
and just had to share it with you cinephiles. So before we get on to the latest Carrie reboot, I did some research into these claims by last week's guest, Jen. And there is indeed a musical. And I listened to the soundtrack on Spotify, and while nothing can top the original one for me, there were some good Broadway musical numbers adapted here. I don't know if it will live in my imagination in the top dark musicals, such as Les Mis and Sweeney Todd, but we'll see. Maybe it'll grow on me a little bit. Now onto the show, or movie in this case. Yes, this will be mostly comparison, but what did you expect? The cast looks lovely with Chloe Grace Mortez from the Kick-Ass films, Julianne Moore, who most recently for me crushed it as the unassuming but diabolical poppy in the Kingsman Golden Circle, Ansel Elgort, who I imagine mostly people know from Baby Driver. This was apparently his first acting credit, according to IMDb. And Judy Greer, who has been awesome in the first of the Halloween reboot films. I would imagine she's going to make it through all three. She does wonders on Archer as Cheryl Tunt, and I quite like her Ant-Man character. She also has a blink-and-you-miss-it Jurassic World, like, the briefest thing. But I do remember seeing her there, and she was in the trailer, and we thought maybe she'll be in this more, but she clearly was not. So off the bat, apparently Carrie is telekinetic and not psychic. My mistake. I must have been thinking of Pokemon. My favorite is Gengar, obviously, in case anyone cares. Yeah, we've mentioned Pokemon a few times here. It's because I'm a big Pokemoner. Pokemon Go, the video games. Absolute blast. Love it. Look me up on Pokemon Go, <laughs> I guess. So maybe I didn't grow up with volleyball. I did try out for the team senior year, and while I did not make the team, the coach did tell me I did better than he thought I did. So I'll take that as a big win for my almost varsity debut in senior year of high school. But what I don't remember from those tryouts was, or even gym class as a whole, any version of playing volleyball in the water like I was like oh maybe this is water polo ah I you know is volleyball another movie why are they playing in the water my mind was racing with how they were gonna change some stuff I thought they were gonna make her ill-fated uh period happen in the pool which would have been pretty traumatizing but they didn't do that so for any specific reason don't know why they went that way no idea don't get me wrong volleyball in the water sounds like a blast and I'd be up for it in a heartbeat, but why combine those things in your movie? No clue. I do also like that things are a little bit less sexualized here, especially in the beginning. That's the one thing that modern horror has done. It There's some of it still, but it's less awkward as it was maybe in like the 70s, 80s, I would say. For a moment when I'm watching this, it made it feel like the students were a little bit better and more understanding, but pretty quickly did I realize bullying is made way worse in modern times especially because they do the whole using your smartphone and videotaping the the harrowing incident in the locker room and kids are just worse now than they were in the 70s 80s and maybe that's the case still but i i was i thought it was going to be better and it was it got way worse i never did like the slap happy gym teacher in this first of these movies i mean james bond used to slap people all the time and somehow no one thought that was a weird thing i don't know but it feels really weird in a 2013 movie because there's definitely a couple slaps that go down from our gym teacher here and they do actually change the gym teacher's name to the original book name in miss desjardin you would think this teacher would be in like crazy hot water trouble for slapping a student once in the first movie 
you know, this gym teacher does it multiple times and somehow is totally fine, but mind-blowing that that existed in this still. I will say, I do love the movie making Carrie actually fear her mom and making it clear she was homeschooled prior to this. It adds a bit of context, thus helping to flush things out a bit and keep the story moving. But the pregnancy scene in the beginning do not need that at all. But her freak out existing after this moment when she's going to go home, being based on her fear for mom and having her mom come to take her away, adding to the humiliation of it all. For a moment, it looked like maybe the gym teacher was going to have a scene with her mom and like try to take an active role in seeing what was going on in her home life. It didn't happen, but it would have been nice to see some scene with those two characters interact. I don't know how that would have broken things up, but I would have been curious for sure. I also like here that Sue is a bit earlier seen as being sorry and repentive for her role in the bullying. And really, that's something that feels throughout the film a clear difference where in the first version, you couldn't really tell if she was bad or not. At least I couldn't when I first watched it. I didn't think they could make the mom more diabolical, but somehow, some way, they found a way to make it more of a manipulative relationship and making her self-harm Carrie's fault and she's you know that's kind of her way of manipulating Carrie and also getting through things herself and being as abusive as the first version as well she does still take some physical exertion out on on her daughter in this her modern day version does not disappoint she feels like a real life person that could exist today and for always since it's a bit less public of her role and her what's going on and how she interacts mostly with Carrie she doesn't really interact in the world all that much you know there's depth to her character you can see like some small good in her and that falsity and that makes her even more dangerous and villainous good work Julianne Moore she cares in a more realistic way too that seems less fake than the original I you could you had no thought that in my mind that mom in the original Carrie cared about her daughter like in a, in a remotely healthy positive way and here there's like just a hint of it that makes it feel like there's some emotional attachment to her daughter some the gym scene when they're working out in detention is more realistic here but i quite like the camp they had in the first one but the realism on full display overall for just the the lived-in world where the whole school is wise to this harrowing incident and feels like the whole school population is at fault a bit here, not just this one group of eight or ten girls. Things are similar here as a movie, but just a bit different. Special effects and all that. You have way more interesting uses and brief teases of her and her telekinetic powers breaking the wood on a door, starting to fix a mirror, with her powers actually being seen doing it. While I think the mom is like a better version of the character for sure, the gym teachers were probably on par. But other than that, I don't think any of the characters are like outstanding compared to their prequel versions. If there's one thing they nail, like I teased earlier, it's the true horror of school and how unlike a few kids knowing in the 70s, information spreads like wildfire way quicker here. They actually do the poem scene that I had a little bit of an issue with earlier i like it better because they mix it up making her be the one to read after the harrowing moment even the teacher making fun of her it all feels a little more realistic i think the teacher part's a little interesting how they he's kind of a dick too but i like that you know tommy played by elgort 
actually reacts to her poem and stops the teacher from bullying her. I feel like that swap makes it seem like he's not really ever a bad guy instead of being a bit more flippant in the first movie. They actually got rid of Chris's evil sidekick, who's the girl with the hat, here, and they tied our bully way more into Sue than the first one, for sure. It otherwise felt like Sue just sort of existed in this group, but here it almost seems like they're maybe were really close friends or like always was kind of the do what I do thing and now maybe she's realizing maybe not do that I feel like I wanted to dislike this more than I did most modern reboots pale in comparison to the originals but there's some lovely development here and it does a good job bringing this movie into the modern era one thing that it will never have is a young and doofy Travolta. Nothing can compare to that. I might say it over and over again. The development and explanation is really appreciated here. It makes the story fuller and things just make sense. Sue asking her BF to take Carrie has to build up as to the why. The asking out happens in a public place and the school just kind of feels alive. I'm not saying I need to own this movie, but this is way better than people give it credit for, I think. In the same way that the Dawn of Justice, Batman vs. Superman theatrical version had a lot of you had to make those logical jumps yourself, wherein the extended cut, you see why things happen and a little more setup as opposed to you having to assume maybe that's what happened, I have no clue. Also, the pep talk scene works and is nice here too, but nothing is better than the original one, no doubt. But, something that the original will never have, but this one does have, is a Tim Tebow shout-out, which is always good for me, from the recently retired ball player. Marco Beltrami, the composer here, does a great job with the music. His work on the Scream franchise can be heard a bit here. He also did World War Z, among others. They've actually taken the teeth off a bit of Chris, and Billy has more of a role here as the actual bully. But overall, they both feel terrible, and less of him being her dumb idiot sidekick. There are just so many moments I like here. Tommy feels a little bit better, even though he was super charming in the 70s prom. She put her mom into the closet she locked her in with her telekinetic powers. There's just these moments that just feel good. The modern prom parts are a bit doofy. We'll get to another version of that when we do the remake of Prom Night, and technology of messaging between Tommy and Sue as some nice moments that obviously could not exist before of like you know he's letting her know oh it's going really well at first it felt like Sue was just coming for some strange purpose when I first first watched it I thought she was coming to see this prank and she was in on it clearly I miswatched it the first time but here she comes because she gets a teasing text of some ominous thing to come. I get it. The technology that was around when the books were written or the first movie came out, different. But things just, once again, make sense here. Even having the prank bucket pullers be in the rafters instead of under some stage, so easily they would have been able to have been caught. Things, once again, they just make sense in the modern version. At times, it did make Chris a bit too forgiving at nice, but she's still bad, no question about it. Something I didn't need in the modern version was seeing blood pour out like five different times from different angles in slow-mo. Like it looked great, obviously, but dumb AF. I have mixed reviews with the big moment, the big climax. On one hand, they doubled down on the embarrassment, which more people laugh, which feels appropriate in a setting the movie has drawn up for us. So it's not just in her head. A few people are on her side, 
but the majority laugh. She's clearly in control of her powers as this movie has built up to us knowing these things, which I like as well. She also has a moment to grieve Tommy being killed by an accidental bucket falling. The live streaming angle is great for others to see the horrors of that night, and I have to say, the end gore and violence is like so, so good. Special effects are amazing here. I do like that she saves a gym teacher here and doesn't actually kill everyone. A fair chunk of people make it out. This feels like a real world and not just a, a small scale problem with police trying to figure out and firefighters, first responders trying to figure out what's going on. The flying parts may be a bit silly, but why not? If she can move objects with her mind, she can move herself. I like the control of these powers. It feels more of a revenge story we like to see instead of a hurricane tornado disaster film. It even makes the fight with her mom just last a little longer because once again, Carrie is in control of what she's doing here. So when she kills her mom, it really is her killing her mom. And it's sensational when it happens that there's that tortured, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it, and then she kind of has to do it. I do like how Sue had been more of a part of this movie as a whole. The epilogue is a bit different for people having seen the first one, but in short, she does what Wanda does to Monica getting her out of Westview, but in as gentle of a manner as possible. And somehow she knows that Sue is pregnant, saves her, and feels genuine remorse for this awful mom who she didn't end up killing so she's got to feel bad about that and decides to consciously die with her the courtroom scene is a bit extra but it leads us to the same eventual end even with some over-the-top voiceover that is like the morals that scrubs used to bop you over the head with in certain episodes the tombstone has its graffiti but they take the blame off sue which feels better since she's actively tortured throughout most of the movie but once again I wish she had talked to Carrie earlier in the movie. The end kind of drops the ball a bit for me with the she may not be dead thing feeling very much like Superman the end of Batman vs Superman with stuff flying everywhere and her screamish. She cracks the tombstone. It's a whimper of an end to say the least. To anyone who thought this is a horror movie, (laughs) lol, stop lying. This is and always will be a tragedy akin to the great Greek tragedies or anything that Shakespeare wrote. And as a story, Carrie is really strong, and I hope I don't lose all credibility here. This remake was not super well-received, but I think it did some things really well. Special effects-wise, just more fleshed out, developed, and some of the main actors do a really strong job. Like, watch the first one first so you can appreciate it, but still, don't slouch on this one. So we're on to the second franchise of slasher-slash-horror movies that take place at a prom. While the first movie could be looked at as a tragedy, this is a clear-cut slasher. Get it? Clear-cut? Ha, ha, ha. No doubt about it. It is fair to compare these, well as there are only so many movies like this. And these are the two most known, I sure think so. The 1980 original version of Prom Night is available on a ton of free streaming services, including Crackle and the free version as well of Peacock+. Plus. I personally always use Tubi as my free things default, but the availability is nice for sure to have here. Like I said, the late Leslie Nielsen was going to come up again, and as amazing as he was in the Naked Gun movies, which are all on that Sundance TV app, he is more of just here. And yes, our lead is the incomparable Jamie Lee Curtis, just two years after the original Halloween and only one year before Halloween 2. And many years before Freaky Friday. How about that? Those sound like exciting prospects to be in your movie. But for reference, this is currently sitting at a 5.4 on IMDb. And the original carry smashed that with a 7.4. 
even the 2013 carry, which once again, I quite liked, almost cracks a 6, so temper your expectations a tad. Watching this beginning, once again, super dated and strange. These kids run around a dilapidated building playing some dumb game which is pretty much tag but to sound more menacing and children of the corny. I watch this beginning and think of a weird outdated version of I Know What You Did Last Summer. And while watching this a second time, I went on a deep dive into those movies on Wikipedia and IMDb and had to pause and rewind to remember what I was doing in the first place. Look, it's tough to be Sarah Michelle Gellar, Jennifer Love Hewitt, and Freddie Prince Jr. So with a clear killer now, you watch it a second time knowing who did the things and those hints are nice to see. But this is one of those movies you watch for most of it and wonder why you aren't watching some other movie about kids being stalked by a serial killer. There are better killers, better made movies, better costumes, better music, and just overall better things in general. Some of the writing here is classic pure cheddar which can be a hoot, but once again, the dialogue is funnier in most Friday the 13th movies, the apex of cheesy slashers, and even the recently talked about on this podcast in the Valentine's Day Survival Guide episode, the thematic slasher My Bloody Valentine has hilarious dialogue. Prom Night is just like the Powerpuff Girls. Cheddar, gore, and everything spooky. These were the ingredients chosen to create the perfect slasher movie. But the director and writer accidentally added an extra ingredient to the concoction, just overall being bad at these things. Thus, Prom Night was born. A worse version of Scream, I Know What You Did Last Summer, in Halloween, but mashed all together into this average, average thing. But let's press on anyway, because some of these things can be excused with just how long ago this movie came out, obviously. My Bloody Valentine also came out just a year later, but the DNA here is the same with the whole here is some evil killer who must be the killer, even though in this case, he didn't do any of those murders. This movie may have helped push the genre forward with some of its ideas, and that is why I am sure it has the notoriety, but no matter what, I have to look at it as its own solo movie with its own body of work, and somehow it just doesn't stand up. And there are clearly older movies that are still great, I still do and always will love Casablanca. Star Wars came out in 1977, three years prior, and guess what? It's still sensational to this day. There's one pretty top-notch line of our mean girl trying to intimidate Jamie Lee, as if. But here it is. It's not who you go with, honey. It's who takes you home. So there are some fairly fun lines mixed in here. The spoilers for an 80s movie notwithstanding... The killer here, looking back, there are some signs of their brother of the slain sister. He is playing with a notepad, and the killer starts writing off and calling names off a notepad. He's pretty good at taking on three people at once, and seems to have some fighting skills. The mask ends up in his dad's office that the killer is using, and it is unfortunately just a generic ski mask. And in general, this killer is actually like pretty boring. But the signs are there after who it is if you watch it the second time around. There are some good moments between the couple of Nick and Kim, Kim being played by Jamie Lee, and watching him unable to tell her the truth, that he had a hand in the accident that killed her younger sister, it's pretty good. There's one part of this movie that is sensational, no movie could ever do as well, is the music and disco dancing. It kicks off with dancing in the moonlight, and Jamie Lee Curtis kicks butt on the dance floor. The scene is a cinematic masterpiece by itself, and if you don't want to give this movie a go, which you should at least try it, this scene and moment is something I could only strive for with my now rapidly growing TikTok influencer fame or whatnot. 
and there's a brief Leslie Nelson dancing. He sways with the best of them. That's always my hope is to one day be in a sitcom and a party scene and just kind of swaying in the background. I think I would do a phenomenal job in that role. Also, tuxedo t-shirts were clearly a staple of these movies in the prom slasher genre as a whole. Sadly, this did not make it into the modern reboots of these. Like, I remember when I had one of those from Hot Topic. Yes, I had my phase just like everyone else, all right? Jeez. It's bad for me how much of a hit this movie takes in my interest in it right up until the disco scene and right after. The kills are kind of bland. Nothing imaginative happens as far as the majority of these kills leading up to the big moment. The one bully being killed accidentally and having musics and light flashes as his head just kind of sits there on the stage. I'm not going to lie, that scene is pretty good and funny. Even though the final battle with the disco music in the background, it's like pretty funny as well. It's not scary and more goofy. There is some sadness knowing she is fighting her brother and once again, with her never being threatened the whole movie, it kind of makes sense. It's a nicer, deeper ending that touches on trauma. It just comes after this ridiculous disco fight sequence. It's not a good movie. But that music is amazing, and Jamie will forever be the face of this genre. So we've come to the 2008 Prom Night reboot, and this is maybe a little bit what started this, because I saw it on Netflix, and I was like, Idris Elba, neat. But I feel like I had to start (laughs) from the first one. This is going to be very much a comparative one. But before we get too far, like I said, I watched this because of Idris Elba. He's been in movies we've talked about a few times now, in Prometheus, 28 Weeks Later, and... I am sure more things. Besides him, we have one of the Twilight vampires, adult Eddie from the It reboot, a super brief role from Ming-Na Wen, who besides being the OG and best Mulan, I think that's like the coldest take that everyone would agree with, she was easily one of the best parts of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as a TV show, and has recently carved out a nice future in the Star Wars universe, so can't wait to see her on the Boba Fett show. We'll see how the Bad Batch is. I'm cautiously optimistic that the Bad Batch will be good coming out on May the 4th. May the 4th be with you and all that. Brittany Snow is in this as your lead, but I can't think of her outside of Hairspray and I guess the Pitch Perfect movies. Maybe one day I'll see the second and third ones. Maybe. So this reboot flies in the face of the original with no real connective threads to the original film. And I don't mean story like in the shared this is a sequel. I mean... Nothing of it sounds familiar to the original movie other than the name of the movie. Instead of a long-ago accidental death and a family revenge story, we get a stalker-teacher revenge story. As much as it was hidden by age, to some degree, you could sympathize with the original prom night killer trying to avenge his sister's death and hold that group responsible for their hidden crimes. Instead, we get a creepy teacher who murders a family for his obsession of their daughter. Weirdly, this is a movie genre that has somehow continued to grow, including the latest from Hulu, a teacher starring an actress who I quite like in Kate Mara. You pretty much have to watch this movie for what it is. A generic slasher movie, not related to the original at all. The setting is just a prom to make it a bit different. But you know when reviewing it, it loses everything from the original, and that loses some serious percentage points for me. There is something a bit different making her lead the one dealing with the trauma as opposed to the ones around her doing it instead. It goes hard into the final girl setup, where in the first one, we never really saw Jamie Lee exactly as the final girl. The music is also painful and generic, 
alt or pop rock pending on the scene. And this writing is, like the first one, bad, bad. But the lack of cheese in it makes me just not really care a whole lot and instead groan. It's not bad funny, it's just boring. I'm sure there are some slashers I like and think are better than they actually are. I just watched Hellfest not too long ago and I had a blast with that fun and unique themes and setting. This is also PG-13, so it's going to be limited in what it can do and show. Having never been to a prom, I missed my chance in high school, but I remember in my last ditch, like one moment of, man, I would like to go, I asked someone and she did say she would have said yes if I'd asked her earlier. So that's something at least. But I guess these take place at hotels instead of schools now, which fine for realism, but a hotel killer is a little bit less of a fun setting compared to a school. Look, we already have the Overlook Hotel and Bates Motel. Both Psycho and The Shining are the best there can be. Yes, neither is the true modern-day gore fest with a lot of fatalities, but this movie really just doesn't matter, unfortunately. They really do just have a place to throw a bunch of bodies in different rooms, I guess. Look, as much as sometimes you just want a random spooky movie, there has to be something. And I guess pretty much I'm just here for Idris Elba, who early in his career had to do a ton of American accents apparently, including The Wire and American Gangster. The problem is, when you watch a movie for Idris Elba, and he is the 13th listed person in credit order, you know you're only going to get so much time with him. Also, just thought of this. It may not be student and teacher, but if you want a good stalker or slasher killer movie, check out Elizabeth Moss, Scream Queen in the Making, in the reimagined and very good reboot and modernization of The Invisible Man. Besides Idris Elba just existing in this movie, I feel like the cool parts here have to be as few as they are. The hunt scene on the abandoned construction level of the hotel. It may not be the most groundbreaking, but it does have some nice tension and jump scares. And even there's a part where her boyfriend is in the elevator and calls out to her and she doesn't answer. And that's a whole, you know, could she have saved herself if she had done that? Who knows? Because he made it through and it just adds that what if situation for you, which is kind of fun. Even though our killer is just some random guy in a suit and hat. But besides that scene, they do have one other fun scene that's a callback to the beginning of finding her family killed, highlighted by thinking her brother is asleep. And at the end of the movie, thinking her boyfriend is asleep. And she is safe and sound, but surprise, surprise, he's actually dead. Like I said, the first one may not be amazing, but there's a bit of fun to be had in that dance scene. The dance scene was sensational in the first of these. This movie has Idris Elba, but that and a few good moments cannot save this super generic slasher. And I know cops aren't always the best in these movies, but the one absolutely terrible scene here is they do an awful job of trying to find the killer when they're trying to evacuate the building. And I would say they're trying to look for the killer, but really they're just evacuating the building, and that's it. They're not even face-checking people leaving the building. The disguises he has in this movie are one hat tilted low, and you never trust someone in a suit and a hat. This isn't old-timey businessmen going to a baseball game. Or just, you know, dressed as one of the employees with your head tilted down. It's so bad. Well, now that we're done with our four movies, you know what time it is. Let's get to a brand new list. I'm not really surprised at this list, adding the lightest, and I don't think you would either. Coming in at fourth has to be Prom Night 2008. Idris Elba, great. A few good scenes, but pretty pedestrian garbage movie. Number three, we went with the 1980s Prom Night. 
same thing. Jamie Lee, sensational. Dance scenes, amazing. The actual part of being a killer movie, pretty bad. The few deep moments are like too little too late for me, for sure. I think one and two, way closer than they should be. I don't think you could put 2013 Carrie ahead of 1976 Carrie, so it has to go 2013 Carrie 2, 1976 Carrie 1. There's no doubt. Carrie as an overall story is way better than Prom Night as an overall story. No doubt in my mind. I think 1976 Carrie has a few moments that feel a little unbelievable today, but obviously the the roots are there and it's a really good movie. I really like, I really like her mom portrayed by Julianne Moore in the 2013 and the technology does help flush things out a bit more. Things like she's homeschooled, and that's where the culture shock comes. She wasn't just always this girl who was strange in public school for years and years to come. Because you'd learn these things eventually in things like sex ed. It just would happen. And we can assume that that's what happened in 1976, Carrie. But you don't know that like you do in the 2013 one. So, gotta give it to the first one. Especially because, and I think both Carries were great. This is the lead actresses. But you gotta give the first one it's due here. Maybe that's biased, but the, I'll say this. As much as I think you have to put the first one first, I think that one and two is way closer than people give it credit for. So I guess this was the closest it gets to me going to prom 10 years-ish ago. But if you know from my sweet, sweet TikTok dance moves, especially those in suits, you know I would be a lovely plus one for any wedding. So send your applications my way and we will see if I can be hidden in wedding pictures all around the world. But another episode in the books. And this is your friendly reminder that we have just one more week left of WandaVision and three weeks before Falcon and the Winter Soldier kicks off. With how much I've been social media-ing all about WandaVision, you know that episode is coming soon. So be on the lookout for that. And as always, check me out on social media at either Movies or knickknack underscore IC, pretty much every platform. Well, cheers. And as always... Until next time, cinephiles. Nick Nack goes to the movies. He's Nick McGann, the biggest Cleveland Browns fan on the planet. He's never met a movie he didn't like. Are you not entertained? I think this is going to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I don't like goodbyes. Let's just call this see you later, alligator.